Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Pocalimp podcast. Samsung has launched the new Samsung Galaxy Note 10, the follow-up, strangely enough, to the Samsung Galaxy Note 9 launched last year, and it's the company's newest flagship smartphone. The device promises a massive screen, a super-fast processor, and stylus support to let you take notes on the go. Chris has all the details from the launch. Is this a phone you should be thinking about getting? After that, I talked to Alex Allen, the CTO and co-founder of AI startup Cortical, about AI and how it has the potential to fundamentally change the way we work and play over the next decade and beyond. And later on on the podcast, I'm joined by tech and lifestyle journalist David Phelan, who's popped in to tell us his top three meditation apps he uses to calm down after a busy day. So Chris, back to you. Tell us about the Note 10. Well, the first point of Note haha, <laughs> is that there, now, <laughs> there are now two Note models. There is the Note 10 and the Note 10 Plus. And this is probably going to be one of the biggest talking points because it's, you know, there's there's still big displays and there's still lots of power under the hood and there's still the S Pen. But the fact that we have two different sizes of this new phone perhaps reveals something about Samsung and where it's going. I suspect that this is a move to be able to offer the Note experience at a smaller size because what was what is now called the Note 10 is the smaller model. And the Note 10 Plus is the big Note, which is the one that kind of follows logically on from the Note 9 from last year. Because Notes have always been gigantic, in my mind. They've always been that kind of almost PDA, kind of Firefox-loving kind of experience. Yeah. And so does a Note 10 regular, does that not encroach on the Samsung Galaxy S10 range? Well, I think that's the, that's the important point here, that the S10 appeared well this happened a few years ago it happened first of all i think with the s8 and then they, then there was a, a larger version and the larger version has always sat very close to the notes and so we've had this strategy where samsung's really putting out four phones a year that are very similar and similar points and places and the only real difference has been that one has the s pen and the s pen supports and the other one doesn't so now we have two sizes of phone up at, uh, up at this level and the changes really do come in the s pen so just looking at the, the Note 10 Plus, for example, yes, there is um, a huge Infinity-O display. This is one with that punch hole camera that's right in the center of the display rather than being the corner that it was before. Why they've shifted it, I'm not too sure. It doesn't seem to make a huge difference in my mind. So, I mean, those, those, those these tiny kind of incremental changes, but it's really about the S Pen and what the S Pen will do because the S Pen has more software support to do useful things like taking notes and be able to convert them into Word documents, which is new. And then it will also do an increased range of remote control functions. So previously, you were able to use it to trigger the camera, for example. But now it actually has a, uh, a gyro in it. It has a six-axis motion sensor, which means it wow. will understand a lot more of what's going on. So you can control parts of the phone when you're not actually holding it. 
you can swipe through different photo modes and you can switch from one camera to the other and you can also use it to zoom in and out that all sounds very impressive but how often are you in the situation where you need to remotely control your phone camera when it's not in your hand and that's that's you know, that's I think that's going to be the question that a lot of people ask is like, why, although these functions are very clever, why do they actually exist? Yeah, I suppose because I mean, the pen, it does sound complex. Um, and sounds like it offers a lot. But yeah, you're right. I suppose the thing I would probably the initial thing that comes to mind to me would be, I'm in a presentation, I'm running it all off my phone. And therefore, I can use the S pen as a as a clicker to move the presentation on. Um, but then after that, you said, you know, I've, I'm I'm an Apple Watch iPhone user and I can control the camera on my phone on on my watch and I think I've done that about once in the last 4 years. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about phones. We very often have them in our hands. It's not like when you had a DSLR camera and you wanted to take a time lapse and you set it up on a tripod and then walked away and had a cup of tea and all the rest of it. It seems to be that some of those kind of ideas are coming to phones and I'm not sure that everybody who wants to just put their camera in their pocket is going to be walking around with the thing that's going to hold it upright whilst they get on and wave their S Pen around and do all of this other stuff. But let's not take away from what these are. These are flagship level phones. There's been a lot of thought going into the design. It's, you know, it's a familiar looking design, but there's been an increased interest in color and the color that Samsung is really pushing is something called Aura Glow. I see this as a direct response to the type of phones that Huawei have been putting out. So it has a back that kind of looks silver from one angle, but then will shimmer through a full rainbow of colors as the light hits it and reflects and refracts and everything else. We have some video of this, so it's definitely worth going over to our YouTube channel to look at the sort of colors that come out of the back of this phone, because it really is like nothing else that we've seen before. And I think that's the next question for you. You've obviously now played with these devices. I know you were at the launch. What uh, what do you think? Are they good? Are they should you consider it if you're uh, if you are uh, due an upgrade for Android? Oh, the 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 Galaxy Note is always worth consideration because it really is the very best of what Samsung offers. But there was a time when the Note was about doing something experimental that hadn't been seen before. The Note was a slightly smaller circulation device that would debut a feature that would then appear in the next Galaxy S the following year. We seem to have stepped out of that cycle as all these phones have come closer together. So the reality is likely to be about price. If, uh, if it comes in at an attractive price, then sure, go for it. But there will be a lot of people who will look at the Galaxy S and say, actually, that does everything that I want. And then and nowadays, given that so much of a phone's advancement is based around AI, it may be that you have can have just as much fun with the with the old Note 9 itself. And do you think, I mean, one of the things I've always thought with the Note range is that it's kind of the, being the forebearer, the flag bearer, so to speak, of the of using a stylus on a small handheld device. You know, we've obviously seen styluses in the surface on tablets, on, on iPad, on, on, in a, on even Samsung's tablets, but not many people have gone down that route of copying the idea of having a pen or a stylus on your phone. Do you, do you think it's now got to the point where nobody will, or are we think? do you think this is will start to change people's minds? It's hard to say, really. I think if you want that stylus experience, then you've probably decided that the note is where it needs to be. Um, and Samsung has been doing a lot of work to create an environment where you can do lots of things. They have these, they have air gestures, they have all sorts of support. So there are some really, really clever features that 
are enabled through using a stylus, being able to click and uh, click over stuff and translate stuff and using a lot of AI. Um, I've always used, having used a, a note for a long time, I've used a lot of those features on a regular basis. I, if you're not so keen on having this accessory stylus, then really it's, it's not, it's not a huge thing. A lot of people say it's about business, but there are, there are lots of consumer things that come into this well as well. And I think the note 10 is a reflection of that. It's a much more sophisticated device, but the real changes they're pushing seem to be more of a consumer focus than a business focus. Still to come, David Phelan talks us through his top meditation apps to keep calm. That's the great thing about all three of these apps, that you can uh, put your toe in the water without committing uh, yourself financially. And if you like it, well, then there's much more available. Artificial intelligence has the ability to fundamentally change the way we work and live not only over the next decade to come, but from today. Whether it's a digital voice assistant helping you set a cooking timer in the kitchen or a computer that allows blood to be efficiently shipped around the NHS with minimal waste, AI is everywhere and here to stay. But should we be afraid or should we embrace it? I caught up with Dr. Alex Allen, the Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of AI firm Cortical, to find out more. I started by asking Alex what the company actually does and what he believes AI will mean to him as a business. We use AI to create AI. As we're basically an AI technology platform. Um, and effectively, uh, we've also ended up doing a bunch of sort of AI productionization on top of that um, as part of sort of selling the platform. So we've ended up with a lot of experience doing kind of AI in practice and AI in production. Um, we're going to have the first production AI system of the NHS this year, which is, which is exciting. Um, and we also work with kind of smaller companies and we work across literally any industry from sort of healthcare finance to uh, tax law, to manufacturing, retail, um, um, media. So it's, yeah, it's a real range of different uh, experiences we've had with kind of current AI and um, also we've done a bunch of thinking about the future as you would. Now, when you talk about AI to the layman on the street, they initially think of artificial intelligence. That's what it stands for. Can you just, to start us off, could you walk us through other key steps or areas to go through? Yeah, so it's often, um, depending on who you're pitching to, what talk you're doing, you will get people saying, well, it's not AI, it's machine learning, or it's not machine learning, it's just statistics on steroids or whatever. And, you know, there's some, there is definitely a number of companies out there, or, you know, depending on how they're, who they're talking to or how they're branding things, they'll use the words, AI to actually mean pretty much just analytics of some sort. Um, when I first did a degree in AI, uh, it was because I was into things like science fiction and the concept of you know Asimov's sort of iRobot and sentient AI, and so that's really I think where a lot of people associate you know the word AI with. Um, I think we're a million miles away from that. But um, in terms of a definition of AI, um, the one I like to use is that AI is a kind of combination of sort of prediction and planning. So prediction saying, if I'm in this current state, what would happen if I move to a future state? So um, that might be something like, if, I were, if I'm at this position in a chessboard and I move that pawn to there, how does that affect my overall uh, winnability of the game? Or if I, uh, a sales organization and I assign this lead to this salesperson, what's the chance of that converting? So that's like, in any given state, what's the, what would happen if I moved to a different state? And that's like a one-time thing. Then you've got the kind of planning, which is given that I can understand what would happen if I moved from state A to state B, 
I can do a bunch of these state transitions. What set of things should I do to maximize some value over time? So that's really kind of a superset of the first one. And that, again, that's something like what we're doing with the NHS is kind of blood supply, blood supply demand planning. And that's uh, given that we can understand what the demand's going to be and the supply's going to be across all these blood products, across all the hospitals or, or stockholding units. You know, what set of actions should we take to minimize wastage, maximize availability, minimize transport costs? So it's kind of combining a bunch of different lower level models into a plan of action. And actually, I think you can basically extend that definition all the way up to sort of sentient AI. So, you know, if you think about how humans perceive things, you've got, you still have predictions. Like, you, you know, you always run through things in your head like, if I said this to that person, what, how would they respond to your sort of short term predictions? And then you've got your kind of longer term things like, I want to be here in five years. What do I kind of need to do? What set of actions do I need to take? So you're kind of, I think that's kind of the building blocks of consciousness. And it's just the elaborate, you know, what, how sophisticated can you, your predictions be and how, uh, how far in the future and how elaborate can your plans be defines how sentient or not that experience is. That sounds like a lot of rules and a lot of data yeah. and a lot of sort of com what I would call computational power to try and create that because, you know, talking to you, I'm thinking, right, the next question I'm going to ask and then what's he going to yeah. ask, is that going to be interesting to those that are listening? Yeah. Is, that's quite a small algorithm or small set of rules or potential questions that I can ask to take the next question. How do you go about, if you're then layering more and more questions, how, how do you go about processing all that in a, without taking a thousand years to come up with the answer? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the human brain is extremely good at taking shortcuts to reasonably good solutions. If you look at um, AlphaGo Zero, now, Go was considered something that could never really be solved in, well, in the next 20 years by machines because they were looking at Deep Blue and they were applying Moore's Law and saying, basically, you'd need, because of the branching factor of Go, you need that much more compute that you'd never be able to brute force it. But kind of what AlphaGo Zero did was use kind of stuff from reinforcement learning and neural networks, which they would, they would basically vastly cut down the area of stuff you'd need to search by having a kind of best guess and then searching within that kind of space rather than having to do it all from that kind of brute force. And that's kind of what the human brain's really good at doing is cutting down this like the complexity of the world and learning from a very small number of examples. So that's actually kind of, you know, current machine learning, you need huge amounts of examples in some instances to get to good results. So if you look at them, we've got superhuman results in sort of image processing now in some um, other kind of human-centric tasks. I think with machine translation, we're actually better than the average translator, or I say we, I mean Google. Um, and that's, it's not that surprising if you think that you can give it literally billions of examples and a human will never be able to have that many examples in their lifetime. But what humans, if you actually look at how well a human does over the same number of examples as a machine, it's not even remotely close. So a human can learn things in like orders of magnitude faster with less examples and generalize off those examples much more effectively. And that's really kind of, that's where you don't necessarily need more data, but the, the kind of field of AI and machine learning is looking at how how humans are making these um, shortcuts to get around this problem of data and computational power. And so how close are we to understanding how that, I know there's a lot of work done, being done with sort of understanding how babies learn, because again, that you get as a child, as a, as a toddler or a baby, you get, you get very small amount of data sets, but you, you understand that, you know, if you touch something and it's hot, you're not going to touch it again and things like that. So is, is that something that AI is learning quicker and it's, it's a kind of a, a curve that is, is exponentially growing faster and faster, or is that still fundamentally the thing that's stopping AI become 
you know, becoming the same as human. I think there's a fundamental problem of computing power. I mean, if you look at the human brain, there's 100 billion neurons, and they have, a, I think, a, something like 100 hertz or something like that. But if you look at actually what that implies in terms of computing power, that's far, far, far more than what we have in our even, you know, bigger supercomputers or GPUs or whatever. And, you know, that's, we're not going to get to that point within the next 15 years, probably. So does that, even if we could make something as efficient as a human brain, we're still miles away from the raw compute available. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, if you look at the current state of deep learning, that neural networks are fundamentally inspired by Hebbian learning, which is derived from the way human brains learn. So it's kind of, a lot of it's kind of from the bottom up how the fundamentals of the human brain works have inspired some of these learning algorithms, but also, also from the top down, how, how we actually experientially learn things. So the idea of having things embodied and actually how that's really important to learning. And I think we're, we're seeing that kind of self-driving cars. There's a lot of parallel uh, autonomous agents out there and all kind of learning from real world experience. And that seems to be quite fundamental to some forms of intelligence that are embedded in the real world. So it's a combination of both things, so kind of the sort of psychology almost and the, and the biology, which is the kind of neuroscience sort of ground-up stuff. And so that's the thing, it's sort of, it feels to me the end goal of AI is to create a sort of robot that is sort of, you know, a part Terminator or part Bicentennial Man or whatever it's called, you know, that's sort of a robot that helps do things. We're obviously seeing AI at the very early stages at the moment, and it's kind of invading or helping our lives, depending on how you look at it. How do you, are there sort of AI instances that most people will use that either they don't realize that it's AI driven, that we're enjoying, or, or just sort of where we're likely to see it that, that will actually really benefit? Yeah, so I mean, there's almost everything you'll do will have AI in it now. So and AI in the sense of basically machine learning and potentially a little bit of planning on top. So, for example, if you've got an iPhone, you, you know, your app suggested apps, that's, they've actually got a dedicated kind of neural network processor in there. Um, things like Facebook feed or Twitter feed now, that's, that's trying to understand that it's creating those lovely filter bubbles for you so you only get content you agree with. Um, but, I mean, I think the first... I remember being extremely impressed when Siri uh, or all these voice assistant things actually worked properly. I mean, it, the, the actual understanding human language and rendering that into text just never used to work properly, and now it does. But I guess AI is always the next thing, and so that's become almost mundane, and that's not really AI anymore to me. Um, the thing that I think is going to be quite exciting, and I think the, especially for consumers, uh, the paradigm shift that's on the horizon is, is like virtual assistants that really work as virtual assistants. So you can say to Siri, I'll you know, set my alarm for five minutes, but you can't say, I want to go on holiday to Croatia. Can you find me a hotel that has a hot tub on the balcony and it's within this price range, and it's kind of roughly around this location, and allows pets. Um, but there's not really, we don't have that far to go but before we can, I'd say five years or something, where we can have these kind of virtual assistants who can go out onto the web and interact with APIs or natural language or whatever and actually do these tasks. And think about the, the number of potential applications of something like that, where it can do very, kind of, that's quite, an, quite a difficult task for a human to do, it takes a long time, and it's one of those things where an AI can actually do a better job. If it can understand that task, it can search all options and parallel and things like that. And that really will be kind of, for the consumer, a game changer, I think. Um, and it will make things like planning holidays and events and, and stuff like that incredibly uh, efficient by comparison. But you can also imagine in the business world, the implications of something like that 
basically take a huge number of the automate a huge number of kind of admins kind of roles as well. So, and one of the on that that comes to that question of of a lot of people ask certainly of me when I'm doing radio interviews and things is that sense of when you're talking about AI is this going to replace all our jobs, right? Yeah. Is it that sense of in ten years time, twenty years time? Majority of the workforce won't have a job because a computer will have replaced it. Is is that likely? I know it's a doomsday scenario, but is that likely to happen, or is that a bit overblown? I think to some extent it's overblown. We, you know, you always see kind of jobs opening up in previous industrial revolutions. I do kind of think at some point um, there's going to be AI is going to be quite capable of doing pretty much anything, and I think that's more a question of society and how you transition towards that. And I think it's the the potential advantages of having. You know, as long as the kind of value created from that gets translated into value for the workers effect effectively. And things like minimum um, living wage and things like that need to be, I think, are going to be essential as we go towards the future and ensuring that that kind of value doesn't just end up in the hands of private companies. But um, the kind of, it's one of those things where it's it, the potential advantage of that would, would mean that we could have a, basically the cost of living could go to virtually nothing for everyone. Um, and that's quite, a, you know, the cost of healthcare, things like that. You imagine you've got an AI doctor app in your phone that can do at least as well as a GP. That basically allows you, anyone in the world who's got a smartphone, which is more than 50% of people now of some sort, to, to get access to healthcare. You know, that's kind of such an insane holy grail. It's, it's important not to forget that. Well, there obviously are these challenges around how we transition from a kind of society where everyone has to have a job to society where potentially might not need that many jobs that directly influence the economy. So it doesn't mean it wouldn't be jobs, but there might be something around, uh, you know, marine biology doesn't really impact the uh, or exploring, uh, kind of exploring other worlds or kind of uh, painting or art or theatre. They're all kind of quite meaningful things to do, but don't have a direct economic impact per se. Um, so that's a question, I think that's uh, that is an important question. I think it's almost like the, uh, the other concerns around AI. I think a lot of people are thinking this at the moment and a lot of people are rightly worried and it's that that causes people to take action and um, we haven't got anywhere near to that point yet like we are we are well, well, away away from that actually having a tangible impact on people but thinking about it now and starting to take action to make sure that the good scenario happens rather than the other scenarios is uh, is important and it's important to kind of keep, keep that um, consciousness around that and keep that pressure up so that we end up with the yeah with the decent version and what what do you see? What's the most exciting thing you've seen, either that you're working on as a company, or or that you've seen elsewhere that you think, wow, this is? I know we've talked about the idea of virtual assistants and being able to book holidays and stuff, but you think, okay, this is this is really cool. Uh, reading, you know, when you've got a survey and you fill out the, I like this a lot or not a lot or really hated it. Um, there's always that box at the bottom of a survey, which is your kind of free text field where you can kind of put in whatever you want. Traditionally, that was always manually kind of labelled by a team of people called code trainers and we worked with a market research automation company to kind of see if we could build an AI model using our technology to kind of do that automatically and basically in that half a day we'd managed to get something that was better than better than a kind of human error rate at classifying these text examples and that was only off like 10,000 training examples for the machine learning so you often hear like impressive things with machine learning and it's like a billion examples to get it to that point but 10,000 examples isn't really that many um, for in machine learning terms. And I was going to say, do you have to, that's kind of brought me into like, uh, an idea that's had, which is, 
you know, the idea of le of teaching these machines is it is it difficult? I know whenever whenever I go to type a password into some website and I get it wrong, it's like, can you see a car in this picture? <laughs> I presume that's to to learn to help AI learn, and is that is it is it based on just all of us putting in more data in an attempt for it to get better? Yeah, there's kind of two ways it learns. One is there's stuff that's kind of implicit training labels, so you could say, for example. Let's look at all of the earnings information and, and quarterly reports for a company that's listed on the FTSE 100. The training, the training signal could just be the share price, so you don't need to create any labels in that case. But conversely, you could, in the exact same example, say, I want to understand when there was um, positive sentiment in a quarterly earnings report. We should probably require people manually going through those reports and labelling the sentiment to get to that point. Um, so one is probably an easier starting point if you're looking at doing stuff with AI because there's no cost involved in creating that training data. The other basically requires some human somewhere to put their own, you know, have their own opinion on it and encode that with a label. And actually what we find is we often get the same, uh, the same bit of data labelled by a number of different people as they tend not to agree sometimes, especially for the more subjective things. Um, and that, does, that is more expensive, but that does also mean you can do that for basically anything. And I think what's in, uh, what I think some of the misconceptions are, and certainly what we've been finding, is people think you need to create a huge amount of this data before you can get anything meaningful. And we found with literally in the order of hundreds of labels, you can still start to build things that have an actual business value. Um, so I think that's something that we've we've been surprised to find, and businesses are surprised to find how quite quite how cheaply they can get started and get to a point where there's some actual ROI in doing this. Um, AI kind of approach to whatever the problem is. And this is probably a tainted question because of the business that you run and what you do, but do you think every business should look at adopting AI into, into, their, into their work? I think if they don't, they're finished. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I think it's, it depends business to business. It depends how... So some sectors are kind of post-digital uh, or have, have stuff in databases or electronic forms. Some, bus some business sectors, I'd say, are still moving from paper to digital, and that's, that's fine. I mean, it's, it really did, that, happened, that kind of um, that technological progress happens at different rates of different industries through to different, due to different pressures. Uh, it really isn't worth thinking about AI until you've got training data in a lot of cases. I mean, there might be some applications where there's like an off-the-shelf thing. Um, so, for example, I think kind of the construction industry tends, some of the people we've talked to there, they, they're still doing a kind of digitization, so they're not quite ready to explore AI projects. But conversely, they've got cameras around the sites and there's an API you can use to count the number of people in a frame. So you don't, they don't need to train their own AI for that. They can use an off-the-shelf you know, model. But, I mean, I think the most meaningful business AI is always created off that business's data because otherwise... You, it's not really any way to get a, an advantage your, that your competitors wouldn't also have without you building your own models. I get it. I'm busy, you're busy, we're all busy. So how can you step out of the rat race for two minutes and relax? Meditation, supposedly, but before you wonder whether that means you have to buy a flotation tank or invest in a quiet room, there are easier ways of relaxing, calming and being mindful by just using your phone. To walk us through his top three, I'm joined by tech and lifestyle and occasional PocketLint podcast contributor, David Feeland, who fresh from a yoga class is here to tell us his top three apps to take a breath, remain calm and carry on. So David, what's on the shortlist? 
Well, the first of my uh, three favorite meditation apps is called Calm, which is obviously what it's all about. I first got into meditation actually through the Breathe app on the Apple Watch, which encourages you just to spend one minute uh, concentrating on your breathing. And that's a good step into um, meditation. And the thing about Calm is that it looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful so that it really does have a kind of a, a quite calming effect as you start using it. There's lots of different kinds of um, mindfulness practices. Uh, as with all of them, there's some free stuff. And then if you want to do it for longer or you want to do it in greater depth, then there's a subscription. But actually, that's the great thing about all three of these apps, that you can uh, put your toe in the water without committing uh, yourself financially. And if you like it, well, then there's much more available. Cool. So that's the first choice. What's What are you going to give us as a second choice today? Well, the second one is an American one called 10% Happier, which is a great name. And it was created by an ABC news anchor called Dan Harris, who famously had a kind of meltdown, a panic attack on air when broadcasting. And this made him look into why he had it, what he was doing wrong and, and how he could fix things. And the, the subtext is that it's an app uh, offering meditation for fidgety skeptics. And if you are skeptical, then this is a great place to start. It, it, each meditation consists of two parts. The first is a conversation usually with Dan Harris and uh, one of the instructors, Joseph Goldstein, um, who is brilliant. And then the second half is the meditation itself. So it starts off that it's only five minutes on the first day, and by the end of the, the free section, uh, then you're doing it for 10 or, or 15 minutes. But it eases you in, and the first parts are brilliant. I learn something new every single time, and then the, uh, the, the meditation itself works well. So that's a really good starting point. If you can choose anyone, though, David, what would that be? My favorite is called Headspace. It's been around a little bit longer. It was set up by a, a British guy, a former Buddhist monk called Andy Puddicum, who has a very relaxing, um, helpful voice and leads you through uh, meditation after meditation. It's got very nice um, animations to uh, teach you little lessons or to guide you in certain ways. And it's incredibly flexible. There's so much to choose from. That's one of the best things about it. But you can find yourself doing a 20-minute meditation if you want to. Or if you're really busy, you can do one, two, three minutes, something like that. So uh, it, it's great. And it means that you can meditate every day if you want to, even if you don't have 10 or 20 minutes every day. Although certainly the, the longer ones are the most fulfilling and most useful. It's got stuff for sleeping. It's got uh, courses for uh, relationships or for uh, feeling better about yourself and, and lots of other things. And even now group um, meditations where you can meditate at the same time as uh, other people online. You don't hear them. They don't hear you <laughs> breathing or snoring or whatever. And that, although it's the one that's been around the longest, uh, I think is for me the best. That's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on? It really will help raise our profile and let others know you liked it too. Until next Friday, pip pip. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 